Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. It is another week, and we have another biblical passage that awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week, we will continue on in the book of Luke. This time, we'll be finishing Luke chapter 18. And in our passage today, we will see Jesus bearing his heart and soul to his disciples and how that went. And then we will see selfishness on steroids, and we will see God's mercy in action and the result of that. So a wonderful passage that we'll look at. It teaches us, even through comparison and contrast, a method that leaves us asking of ourselves, which am I? So let's begin, and we'll begin reading in Luke 18, verse 31 through 34, where Jesus took the twelve aside And said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So Jesus makes this very important announcement in these three verses. Now it says he took them aside, and this was obviously then a more private moment. They were on their way to Jerusalem. There was probably some multitudes there, but he takes these 12 aside a little bit more for a private uh, things that he wants to say to them. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, and the disciples even knew that this would be dangerous. If we look at John chapter 11, uh, at a few verses there, this is uh, from in John's account, but this is roughly the tame, same time frame. And this was when uh, they had found out that Lazarus had died in John 11. And Jesus said, after this, he said to the disciples in John 11, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? And then after explaining the significance of Lazarus's death, and why that, that there is a time delay there. He said in verse 15, And I am glad for your sake that I was not there when Lazarus died, so that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And Thomas, who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us go, that we may die with him. So they perceived the danger that was there because they knew the Jews were, were hunting down Jesus or wanted to arrest him, etc., So Jesus mentions, though, in Luke 18, that when he goes, all the things that are prophesied concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, in verse 32, Luke says the Son of Man will be delivered to Gentiles, mocked, insulted, and spit upon, scourged, and killed on the third day, and then he will rise again. 
Mark, in his passage in Mark 10, that's saying the same thing, uh, has a little bit extra there where he starts with saying that he will be be betrayed to chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to to death and then deliver him to Gentiles. And Matthew mentions mostly the same as Mark, but he also mentions one more detail when he says, and they will crucify him which is the first time Jesus makes reference to his upcoming crucifixion. So these events then, as Luke says, are all written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man that will be accomplished. That's how he writes in Acts 13.29 about these about events. So Luke is a historian, and he is making sure that we understand that these prophecies will be fulfilled. Uh, all of the things that Luke mentions did are prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8. We'll see how, uh, or we can see where Jesus says he will be mocked. Isaiah 50, he'll be hit and he'll be spit upon. Isaiah 52, 14, uh, he will have an appearance marred more than any man, reflecting his beatings and his being uh, being stricken. And Isaiah 53, 4 says he will be stricken. Isaiah 53, 8 says he will be killed. Isaiah 53, 10 says he'll be resurrected. But it's only Luke that then adds that they did not understand any of these things. And why is it that they did not understand? You know, this has been mentioned once before by Luke in chapter 9 and verse 45, where Jesus mentioned just this. He said that Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of men. And that part they, that says they didn't understand, and it even mentions they were afraid to ask. So there was confusion they didn't want to ask there. But here in Luke 18, it's interesting, Luke uh, gives threefold emphasis to really emphasize this. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. Now, what is blocking them from fully digesting or grasping these things or hearing it and understanding it? And I think we'll see a good answer to that in Mark's account of the same thing in Mark chapter 10. Here we read in verse 32 through 34 of Mark 10 that they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Notice they were amazed, I think, because he's choosing to go. I can't believe it. We're going toward Judea and then Jerusalem. And they were afraid, like John 11 hinted. And then he said, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed, and so forth. And on the third day, that he will, after they kill them, he will rise again. So he mentions that and there, uh, to them. And then the next thing we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, is this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. So they make this uh, approach to Jesus, and we see here in verse 35 and 36, there's two questions. One comes from the disciples. We want you to do whatever we ask you to do. You know, you're like a genie in a bottle almost, or if we rub a rabbit's foot, it almost seems like their mentality. And Matthew, in his account, he actually says that they got their mom to do it for him, that she must have been traveling in their entourage, and she asked for the this position of, of great glory for her sons. The second question comes from Jesus when he responds and says, what do you want me to do for you? 
And just stop and ponder this before we answer. What do you want me to do for you? What if Jesus, what a question that Jesus asked. How do you answer? I would like a better financial situation. I would like healing of a physical issue. I, I would like a mate. Or no, I would like to lose my mate. A, a better zip code. The solving of some major trial that I'm in the midst of. I just like some recognition or fame or talent or beauty. That's something along the lines of how many of us might have be thinking. And how many of us would think, oh, no, no, Lord. You are the Lord, the Master, and I adore and worship you. How can I better worship you? What do you want me to do for you? It's kind of like the JFK famous quote, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Well, this thinking here, by the way, of the two disciples, the sons of Zebedee, is pretty selfish. Uh, they're asking this request that they would be on the right hand and the other on the left in your glory or in the kingdom. I mean, they already knew they were going to be leaders in the kingdom. God, Jesus has already you know, presented that to them. But they're asking here to be the leaders. They're saying, give us glory. Now, you have to remember, this kingdom is for all the regenerate, all the saved from the entire Old Testament, and all of those individuals, millions, hundreds of millions of regenerate people will be in this kingdom. And that includes superstars, you know, the Judaistic uh, top of the list of Moses and Abraham and Elijah and so forth. And these two are asking for the top two spots. Boy, stop and think about this. They are his key disciples, James and John, two of the inner three, along with Peter. They've been with him for three years. They have traveled with him. They have listened to him teach. They have asked him questions. They have seen miracles, so many things. And Jesus has just shared his heart with them, speaking of heavy and awful things that are going to happen to him, things that they don't fully understand, intense, difficult, situation. And right after this, they don't make any mention of any kind of care or concern for Jesus. They just come barreling in with their selfish request, and they're not relating to Jesus or his sorrow or what he just shared with them. And no wonder, no wonder Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. How much, how just put yourself in his shoes as he has invested himself in these human relationships, these disciples who are to carry on, and, and he's going to be leaving them in just a few days. And they're so clueless at this time. Boy, the patience of the Lord. Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? As he's referring to his crucifixion and his suffering, his physical uh, death. And they said to him, we are able. Now this is just a foolish, foolish thing to say, full of self-confidence and ignorant. In fact, again, in a matter of hours, they're going to be, all 12 will be running away from him in the garden when he's arrested, scurrying away. But they said to him, we are able. But then Jesus said to them, well, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Because Jesus knew that after his resurrection, these are the men that really will be the emboldened preachers, and they will indeed 
suffer and be martyred and physical peril, just like he is. Though they don't understand that at all now when they said, we are able. But he said, to sit on my right hand and on my left, Jesus continues, is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Like maybe Moses or Elijah or someone, you know, hey, this is a little bit bigger than just us right here now. But then Jesus uh, called them, excuse me, after this, the ten heard it. They found out that James and John asked this, and they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, why do you think the other ten are displeased? Oh, you are so insensitive. You're not showing care. Look what Jesus shared with us. Do you think? No. No, I'm sure it's, we want that place of honor, you guys. You guys are just being selfish. Who do you think you are? We want, and they're jockeying for position. Who's probably the most upset is Peter, because Peter's kind of the informal leader of all of them, and he's one of the inner three who just happened to not be there at that time when James and John did that. I mean, you know, there's only two chairs, a right and a left. I guess Peter could sit behind Jesus, but... So they're all upset, disunity, tension. And so just more of the same from these disciples. But then verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. They, they, they exalt themselves, is the idea. In verse 43, he says, and it's very emphatic in the Greek, It shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. So Jesus exalts again as he has many times. Humility is first. And look, Isaiah 55 reminds us, my ways are not your ways, God says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And that's why Jesus says this typical worldly thinking is not to be so among you. You're to see things with humility. And Jesus then uses himself as the example in 1045. Jesus came to serve, he says. And this is the first hint now at his substitutionary death, saying that he will give his life a ransom for all a willing sacrifice. And a ransom speaks of paying a price for freedom. It speaks of redemption, free from bondage. And the greatest illustration that the scriptures use over and over for redemption is Israel being redeemed from Egypt and being carried through the Red Sea and having permanent uh, release from Egyptian bondage. First Timothy chapter 2, uh, 4 through 6, reminds us that God is not willing that any would perish. He wants all to be saved and that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And there the word is all, a ransom for all. Christ died for all. He is making it possible for all to have eternal life. You see, at the cross of Calvary where Jesus died, justice was met, God's wrath was carried out, and a payment was made, and and a purchase for freedom was now granted. Because the penalty of sin was removed, God's wrath was satisfied, and it was done, Christ died for all, for all of us, and he died for you, and that means it is now available. It is finished, paid in full.
So the Lord Jesus loves you. He knows you. He actually knows you well and even sees all the bad stuff in your sin. And he still chose to die for you. And that death on the cross is your only means of freedom from the bondage of sin and fear and living life in a selfish little circle or always thinking about what someone else has done to you or how you're a victim or how you're never going to be good enough or whatever. And you can be freed from that. Total cleansing, forgiveness by responding by faith to Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. I hope you can be persuaded that God so loved you so you will trust or depend on this Christ. That's why he came, Mark 1045. Jesus came, he says. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom. He desires that all be saved. I sure hope that's true of you. And that's why in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're reminded it is by grace, and by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not what we do for him. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, our salvation is never based on our boasting in ourselves or what we've done. It's always by grace. God gives us a gift that we don't deserve. So I hope you know that you have eternal life, that this Jesus did indeed die for you, and that God does certainly love you. He has stated it, and it is true. So may you, by grace, be saved and know that for sure. So our passage in Mark gives us a vivid picture of where the disciples were at at that time in their thinking, what they're focused on. They have a general dullness to the spiritual things Jesus is trying to teach them, and this is illustrated by their bantering in their conversation of who will be the greatest. You see, their focus is on earth, the earthly kingdom that they saw as being very near. And so they're jockeying for position in their own glory. And this focus prevents them then from really seeing, from really identifying or hearing what Jesus is saying and his suffering and dying. And without that, it was, it was without even understanding how he's going to suffer and die, how are they going to understand or believe in his resurrection? So they're just missing it. And they're not able to really comprehend the suffering that Jesus has shared with them and explain that these things will happen to him. They aren't reflecting on these profound truths. They were the insiders. They were the busy ones working with him, being around him. They were like his handlers and they were interfacing and making connections and provisions and and interfacing with the crowds. And they were important. But, you know, this truth that Jesus shared was entirely understandable. And you know how we know that? Because someone amongst them got it. And that someone was Mary of Bethany, who in John chapter 2, just a little bit after this incident, she has Jesus and the disciples in her home along with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. And it says in John 12, too, they were there they made him a supper and Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and began to wipe his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. But the disciples, it says in John 1, but we know in the uh, Mark's passage, it was all of them. They were upset by this. And they said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he they said not because they cared for the poor. 
They were they just didn't get it. And Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. How did she know there was a burial? She heard his words. She heard the same things, probably not even as often or frequently as the disciples did. And she got it. She heard it. She processed it. Processed it. She understood it. Believed it. And now she's ministering unto her Savior in light of that truth and her recognition that he's going to die. He's going to give himself. And the others are criticizing her sharply because they didn't see it. They were blinded to that, too busy. And we know part of that was because of their own desires and lusts and desire for self-glorification. You know, take note at any given church service or maybe a conference with uh, important topics and great things that are studied and the Word of God is shared. It may just be a handful of people, people who are not even necessarily high in the pecking order or have important function. Maybe it's even a teen. Think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who really had insight and, and believed things. But really, it seems like a few that would connect intensely with the Word of God and the truths therein and relationally connect with the Lord and ponder Him, and they get these things. They get it and can enjoy incredible fellowship and worship and connection with the Lord as they are faithful to what He says. So yes, this truth can be understood. And you know what with these disciples? It eventually was. In fact, after the resurrection, we know that these disciples were very active and busy preaching and pre- going around and advancing the things of Jesus Christ. Acts 17.6, after even a few years of this, um, they entered a, some of these disciples were in a different town and different things, but, but notice uh, it was Jason at this time that he was accused, and they brought him uh, before the magistrates, and it says in Acts 17.6, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come to our city too. They turned the world upside down. So they got it. And that's encouraged. May you be encouraged, listener. You might miss it at one point. You might be dull of hearing at a point in time or occupied on the wrong things. Maybe you're just not enjoying joy. Maybe you're just focused, like a good good example in our day today, focused on politics and conspiracy theories and things that are, it's just not our cause. What are we doing? And as a result, we are dull. We don't even see the uh, the intensity or the, the... the wonderful truth and connection with Jesus Christ. But be patient. God never stops working on us, never gives up. He's always seeking to persuade us. And change is possible as we respond to him and entrust ourselves to him because he knows what he's doing, even though we typically do not. And so we find ourselves back in Luke chapter 18, and 35, we see then uh, the next part of our story after we've seen what Jesus did, claimed and this, you know, gave in this uh, divulging of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. We read in 18, chapter 18, verse 35, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So here we have a beggar, a blind man named Bartimus. 
And obviously, he's going to have lots of needs in that culture, in that time, and having these uh, physical issues. Most likely a very miserable existence. And so he hears the crowd and commotion. Hey, what's going on? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So what does he do in verse 38? He cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they uh, even tell him to quiet down. But just notice he does two things. Son of David. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, but he addresses him as son of David. That is a specific messianic title that highlights God's promises to David, the king, to part of the Jewish lineage, and that he would establish through David a royal line, the ultimate king, the Messiah. Hey, son of David, it's a term that's a messianic title. And to call Jesus the son of David expresses Bartimaeus' understanding of who Jesus is. It's Messiah. The blind man is the one who sees clearly here. He does not call out for Jesus of Nazareth. And how did he know Jesus was Messiah? Well, who knows? He's probably heard many things and people are talking. There's a lot of buzz about his miracles or his teachings or what he's saying. But he says, son of David. And secondly, he says, have mercy on me. And that word mercy means to help someone out of compassion, to show mercy, to, to move towards someone's pain with a desire to help. And, and it's no issue here whether it's deserved or undeserved. Why do we always get hung up on that? In fact, all of us, we are sinners and deserve the consequence of sin, and we are all in need of mercy for someone to move toward us while everyone else is running away from us because they see our sin jesus runs toward us and this bartimaeus says have mercy on me he sees that verse 39 those who went before and warned him that he should be quiet the crowd is saying quiet bartimaeus quiet but he then yelled out all the more and he repeats it son of david have mercy on me So in verse 40, Jesus stops. He stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. Bring me Barnabas. And when he had come near, Jesus asked him, saying, verse 41, What do you want me to do for you? Ding, 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 ding. Haven't we heard that question? What do you want me to do for you? The exact same question he asked the disciples back in Mark chapter 10 And what did they ask for? They asked for the top glory, top positions in the kingdom. They saw Jesus as an opportunity for their glory. A nice rabbit's foot to rub. Bartimaeus gets asked the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And he answered, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Bartimaeus recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes as he's the Messiah. He sees Jesus as an opportunity for mercy, for real help in his desperation. Lord, that I might receive my sight. You see, our greatest need is not material things or glory or fame or ease of life or good circumstances. Our greatest need is for mercy for salvation, for the very cleansing and regeneration that only Christ can give, the cleansing and healing that we receive through him, and then a connection to God as a child of God. Bartimaeus sees that. Verse 42, Jesus then said to Bartimaeus, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
Your faith has made you whole. His faith was seen when he called him the son of David. And his belief was that Jesus was connected or part of the God of mercy. And so by healing the blind man, Jesus now shows that he accepts the title son of David. And in verse 43, the miracle was immediate. And then we see some results, the results of God's mercy in action. It says, and immediately he received his sight. And now Bartimaeus, first of all, followed him. He followed after Jesus, his Messiah. This is what believers do. They have a, we have a reason to live, to hope, to laugh, to praise, to give glory. We have a new life, a changed life, and a new calling. And then he was glorifying God. He's not only following Jesus, he's giving glory to Jesus. Jesus receives the glory from Bartimaeus. Not like the disciples who wanted their own glory from Jesus. So Bartimaeus is acknowledging who Jesus is and properly praising him and celebrating him. And thirdly, it says, And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. All the people gave praise to God. There was a public witness, an impact, an influence here. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Look at this. So amazing. Jesus asked the same exact question to the disciples and to Bartimaeus. The disciples, we want to be the greatest. We want to get glory. Bartimaeus, I want to be made whole. And you, Lord, get the glory. The difference is the perspective of where these people were coming from. The disciples were honest men. They were good men. They loved the Lord. They were followers of him. But in their perspective, they were busy or confused or whatever, and they had an interposition or something, and they just lost focus, lost focus. Bartimaeus sees his need. He's desperate, and the Lord is his solution, and he gets all the glory the Lord does. So as we close, just let me ask. Jesus asks you and I, he can ask the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And if you're not saved here today, if you don't know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you have eternal life when you die, I encourage you to respond to Jesus Christ by recognizing him as your Savior, the one who loved you and died for you, who came and is now the Redeemer and can redeem you and purchase and give you freedom. Faith is how you respond. Faith in him brings forgiveness and eternal life. Whosoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. You can be made spiritually whole immediately like Bartimaeus. And God is glorified. Christ is glorified. That's why Ephesians reminded us that we're saved by grace and it's, it's all the, not by our works lest anyone should boast. Grace is undeserved favor. God meets us in grace. And if you're saved here today as a believer, what when Jesus asked, do you want me to do for you? May we, me, may we be moving toward him with response of faith as to who he is, his glory, his greatness, how worthy he is of our devotion. And may we reverse that question and say, you, you're my Lord and Savior. Lord, you are everything. What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray. Father, we just pray as we see another lesson we can learn from comparison and contrast. 
We see the disciples, Lord, busy, distracted, misfocused, eyes on the earth, on things of the earth, the goings-ons on earth. May we not be like that. We see Bartimaeus recognizing who you are, following you, giving glory to you, and not wanting to receive glory from you, but to give you glory. May we be like him, Lord. Stir our hearts to see your mercy to see your rescue at the cross and believe it, and then to respond to you in our new life daily because of it. We ask this of you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please be feel free to go on your podcast server, wherever you get your podcast from, and like our podcast or even give it a rating. Those are really, That's really helpful. And may I leave you with this? Where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.